take that Bible and look back into Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8, as we close out that chapter today, we'll be covering a lot of material. I've simply titled it, The Interpretation of the Vision. We've seen the vision of the ram, the goat, if you will, and the little horn, and then we're going to take the time to interpret that vision in verses 15 through 27. As your hand is moving there to chapter 8, glance your eyes back to chapter 7, maybe as, even as Andy read today, to remember the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're going to need that, especially as we come to communion. So this is uh, really worship as it leads into that. But in 7.13, Daniel said, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like the son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given, the Jesus Christ being the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Keep in mind as we turn over into chapter 8 that the glorious kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is on its way. It has already began. We are in the kingdom. We're doing kingdom work. We heard much of that this morning at our members meeting. But as you step into Daniel 8, I just want to remind you one more time that if you look down at 8, in 8.1, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel. And so as we step into 8, Understand that he's, at least in this vision, in the third year of King Belshazzar, which we said last week is 550 BC. So that what Daniel wrote down in this vision was 350 to 400 years before the kings that we'll talk about today were even born. In fact, Daniel's vision in chapter 8 revealed a coming leader that would devastate the Jews. He would, as a person, as a king, defy God. He would desecrate the temple and he would trample truth or destroy um, scripture. And Daniel prophesied all of this 350 to 400 years before we would get to that place in chapter 8, meaning that if Belshazzar and his kingdom was wrapped up at the end of chapter 5, he's writing this at the early part of Belshazzar's reign. Let me say this, that everything God has said in the past is true. And what is future to Daniel, in some of it, is history to us. And what that does is it provides hope that everything that God says about the future, what remains unfulfilled, is also true. One of the takeaways today at the end is hopefully this, 
is that the word of God, beloved, is incredibly accurate. That just would be true. That God is sovereign, if you will, over all history, namely that he rules, that he reigns, and he's in absolute control over every event and every circumstance. So the first vision was in Daniel 7.1. We find ourselves in the second vision that came in 8.1. Now I mentioned that it came in 550 BC. And just to put it in perspective, Daniel, you know this now, is not a teenager, okay? He's in his 70s now. So he has been leading, starting in Babylon, okay? And at the time of this writing... Babylon is still in power, but he's not 15 anymore as he was in Daniel 1. He's 70. Now, to understand chapter 8, we've shown that there's two major directions for this vision. Remember, the first section, really, we covered. It was the prophecy, there's three of them, of the ram, the goat, and the little horn. First, there was the prophecy of the ram, and it was the Medo-Persian empire. You say, how do we know that? Look again at 820. As for the ram that you saw, all that he described earlier, it had two horns. These are the kings of Media and Persia, which would have shocked Daniel if he's having a vision, and Babylon is in absolute total dominion and control, and he's talking about a ram that will come and somehow, in his mind, overtake Medo, uh, overtake Babylon, it would be here, this Medo-Persian empire. But then the ram gives way in chapter 8, look at verse 5, A male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And we've looked at that. That goat was Alexander the Great. And so true is the word of God. Look at verse 9. We'll pick it up there. And the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong... The great horn, Alexander the Great, was broken. And instead of it, Alexander was a phenomenal leader. There came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. And we know that's what happened. In in the course of history, after Alexander the Great died at 33, after his death, came four leaders out of that Greek empire, what we would call the Seleucid Empire. And then if you give weight and note, look at verse 9. It's very clear. Out of one of them came a little horn. And so we move from the prophecy of the ram, the male goat, if you will, to the prophecy, thirdly, of the little horn. It just still strikes me as I speak, hundreds of years before this even ever occurred. And I think I mentioned briefly to you, no wonder the liberals don't want to date this in the 6th century, which it's clearly in the 6th century, because Daniel was in the 6th century. They want to make 
the book of Daniel be written in the second century. And one of the reasons they work hard to do that is I think in their mind, they're like, you've got to be kidding me. You're telling me that Daniel wrote about the ram who would come after Babylon and he wrote about the goat who would come after the Medo-Persian kingdom? Really? Are you really telling me then a little horn comes? It didn't have the power of Alexander. And then four conspicuous kings came out of that. And I think we know as I've preached, that's exactly what happened. Exactly to the T, to the detail is what happened. And so what we're now looking at a little bit is past prophecy that's been fulfilled and there's many places that show that in the word of God. Now we're asking in verse 9, who is that little horn that grew exceedingly great? And we said that that little horn is the ruler of the Greek empire Antiochus Epiphanes who ruled during the second century between 175 and 164. We know that certainly by history. And he prophesied to Daniel the cruelty that would be unleashed on the people of God before this guy was ever born, before Greece was actually just even in existence. He's saying out of that one will come four, and then out of that four will come a little horn And he is going to unleash, if you will, persecution on the people of God. Prophetically, we know that he opposed the people of God in verse 10. Prophetically, he opposed God himself. Look at verse 11. It said, it became great, did this little horn. So start small, then becomes great. Even as great as the prince of the host, who we said last week was... God. So he opposes both God's people, but he opposes God himself. Do you remember I told you that during his reign, he went into the temple and he placed an altar in that temple, no longer offering to the true God. I mean, imagine you singing, behold our God, and we're filling our voices in this place. And then at some place down the the road, the, the temple, the worship place gets desecrated. So Antiochus had the gall that not only did he kill 80 or 40,000 at one time and give 40,000 away into slavery, but he comes into the temple and he replaces worship of the true God with Zeus in the Holy of Holies. And then he had the gall to sacrifice a pig on the altar, take the blood of that pig and spray it all over the altar. This guy unleashed on the nation of Israel something of the likes that we've never seen. And certainly uh, we have uh, obviously all the Jewish people who perished during the Holocaust. But here, Daniel, I just want you to know, is prophetically saying all of this. He's going to oppose God's people. He's going to oppose God himself. Prophetically, thirdly, he's going to oppose the truth. He's going to trample the truth of the word of God onto the ground. 
And this is exactly what one of the history books says. He took the book of the law into the temple and he cut it up and he threw it into the fire. Just a, a, a unleashed devastation on the people. You say, well, what happened? And look at verse 13. It says there, then I heard, and remember Daniel's in a vision. I heard a holy one speaking. It's an angel. And another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering? The transgression that makes desolate and the giving over to the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. I, I think if we put ourselves back in that time frame, you would be asking the same thing. How long, O oh Lord, are you going to let the desecration of what this man, this little horn is doing? How long are you going to let this continue? How long until you turn back this persecution upon us and so forth? And they're asking the question, how long? And Daniel in this vision says two angels were speaking to one another. And one of them said to the other, how long will the transgression that makes desolate, how long will it last? And what's amazing in the word of God, the angel answered it. You say, how? Look at verse 14. And he said to me, one of the angels, for 23 evenings, 2300 evenings and mornings, verse 14, then, transition, the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful place. Now, what is this talking about, 2300 evenings and mornings. Um, I was just thinking, liberals say it really doesn't matter, and a lot of good Bible expositors say, well, 2,300 days, it's, it's really just a time frame given. You can't really hold that to be exact, but nevertheless, look again, 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now, there's one of two ways to see this. Some interpreters see the 2300 evenings and mornings as 1,150 days because there's 1,150 evenings and there's 1,150 mornings. One day is a total of 2,300, which would make this a little bit more than three years. On the other hand, and I think definitely the better view, 2,300 evenings and mornings represent a total of 2,300 days demonstrated all throughout the Old Testament where an evening and a morning is one specific day. You can look later in Genesis uh, chapter one. There was evening, there was morning, and that was what? One day. So the case for 2,300 days seems conclusive, and that period of in view would obviously cover six years and four months. 
And so you're left asking the question as you read, as I read and study, what do those 2,300 days refer, refer to? Now, I think it's pretty descriptive. I can tell you when it lasted to. Look at verse 14 at the end. Then, after 2,300 evenings and mornings, the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful place or to its rightful state. Now you say, did that happen? Well, yes, that happened in history. It's not just some flippant number that's put out there. It happened. The sanctuary was restored. We know this on the 25th of December, 165 BC. Okay, something happened, we would say on Christmas Day or in that time, Christmas Day is when it's placed, 165 BC. You say, well, what happened? Well, there was an old priest still left in Israel. Many of the Jewish people had compromised. There's this old priest, his name was Matthias, Matthias, so Jack and uh, Michelle Barley, that's their boy's name. And Matthias was, Jew, was, was really Jewish royalty, okay? And um, so when you see young Matthias here, you know that, that you're looking at him, okay? But here's what it says, and I'm reading out of Maccabees. It said, when the commissioner on this time frame, Antiochus, commissioner of Antiochus, commanded Matthias to take the lead in the offering, to take the lead in a pagan sacrifice. They're asking the priest to do that. Here's what he said, and I'm quoting. I don't care if every Gentile in this empire has obeyed the king and abandoned the religion of his ancestors. Matthias said, my children, I mean, do we have anybody left like that today? He said, my children and relatives will continue to keep the covenant that God made with us. With God's help, we will never abandon his law and we will never disobey his command. We will not obey the king's decree and we will not change our way of worship in the least. I mean, there's some moxie in that guy. I mean, we got people who can't go to church years back because of COVID. He says, stands up amongst all the persecution going on and says, we're not going to change our way of worship in the least. Say, so what happened? Then Matthias killed, I'm not advocating that. He killed the commissioner. He overturned the altar of Zeus and he fled with his five sons into the hills. And they became known as the Maccabees, okay? Maybe you've, you remember that. The Maccabees and Maccabees and that name comes out of the Aramaic and it just means hammer. And I think it spoke of the ferocity, if you will, of both Matthias and his family. And what happened then is he did that. Many Jews joined the Maccabees and it became an all-out, if you will, guerrilla warfare against Antiochus. 
And in 165 BC, two years after fighting, the Maccabean warriors recaptured the temple, pulled down the altar of Zeus. So that's what happened. That we know that in verse, uh, as it says there in 14, it was restored to its rightful state on that day. So then you begin to work backwards, right? 2,300 days from the date of December 25th, as I mentioned in, on that day there. You, you work backwards from that day in 165. You come to the fall of 171 BC. Say, well, what happened in 171 BC? Well, a, a, a priest by the name of Onias III, who was the legitimate priest in Israel at this place, okay, was replaced. And he was replaced, and then he was murdered. He was replaced by a priest by the name of Jason, which is interesting. It has a Jewish name to it, a Jewish background to it, but Jason was just put in there by Antiochus. And so Jason was a pseudo-priest. And this led as they installed Jason in that place to the persecution that was unleashed by Antiochus. So Antiochus' persecution, beloved, went from about September, if we date it back to Onias, 171, all the way to 125, or excuse me, to December 25th, 165 BC, about six years and four months. And then that man, by the name of Judas Maccabees, took it back. And the Jews still celebrate the event that I'm preaching on today. And it's called what? Hanukkah. They celebrate it every December. They light the candles. What is it? It's a looking back at this reflection. It's a looking back where for 2,300 days, Antiochus was slaughtering the people. He, he was so powerful that he looked invincible. And then Matthias and a group of his sons led this guerrilla warfare until the point where Judas Maccabeus took it back 2,300 days later, and it's called Hanukkah. Now, what I'm telling you, you're looking back and we're seeing history, but don't forget, he wrote this 355 to 400 years prior to all of this. The word of God is that accurate. The word of God is that sure. And if you catch anything and you're going into grace group, that's the issue to talk about this week. The word's never been wrong. The word has never erred. The word has never been contradicted by any truthfulness that came after these prophecies. In fact, I would pinpoint it to the very day, to the very point, time frame in six years and four months. This is exactly what happened. In fact, this is long before the little horn was even born. Forget that. This is long before he was even named. It would be like a prophet, we don't have him anymore, saying this is, what are we in, 2024? Saying in 2424, here's the president. 
Here's who will be his name. Here's what country will be in power. That's a long time away. This is what Daniel was doing. And no wonder there's so many liberal critics that don't want to let this stand. They're going to attack the word of God and attack that really Daniel didn't write it. What they're going to say is a pseudo Daniel wrote it. And the guy who's writing for Daniel actually wrote it in the second century as all these things were taking place. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says in the third year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. And he's beginning to take you not only to the Babylonian rule, to the Medo-Persian rule, to the rule of Alexander the Great. Then four, you know, they weren't as strong as him. They break up and then out of one of them comes this little horn. You say, well, what did all of it mean? Well, I'll take you now to verse 15. Hopefully we can finish. Is the interpretation of the ram and the goat and the little horn, okay? In other words, there's the vision, and I chose to interpret some of it as we went, but here's the full interpretation. And you say, well, what took place? Look at the text in verse 15. When I, it's not a pseudo-Daniel. Daniel says, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, comma, he said, I sought to understand it, and behold, there, there stood before me one having the appearance of the man. And I heard the man's voice between the banks of the Uli. And it called, and it called Gabriel. Gabriel, the angel, right? Make this man understand the vision. So he's in this vision and he wanted to understand it and then this voice thunders out Gabriel obviously his word his name means mighty man of God he dispatched Gabriel who makes big announcements in the New Testament on Mary and Zachari- to Zachariah he says help this man understand, assist Daniel. Now you'll look again at verse 16 um, where it says, uh, actually verse, where would that be? He said, behold, there's one standing. He said, make him understand. And so then I came near verse 17 where I stood and I was frightened and I said to him, Make, make him understand the vision all the way to the end of the time. I believe the voice is God's. And he came near, and it says in verse 17, that he fell on his face. He is frightened, if you will. I mean, think about it. He's in this vision, and then he hears this voice, And the voice, it says, is between the banks. And as he's still in this vision, he's standing in the presence of the supernatural. And he's terrified. And verse 17 says he does a a face plant out of terror. So what did the... What did Gabriel say? Well, you can see it. Look again at 17. Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. Now, underline that. For the time of the end. 
What end is he talking about? If you glance down in verse 19, he said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be, the angel said, right, at the later end of the indignation. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. And so he's going to describe what's going to happen for Daniel at the time of the end. If you look down in your Bible at 823, and at the latter end of their kingdom, verse 26, would you look at it there, 826, the vision of the evenings and the mornings, and that has been told is true, but seal up the vision Verse 26, for it refers to many days from now. Now, immediately in the context as you interpret scripture, he must be referring to the vision that he just gave of the ram, the goat, and the little horn. However, okay, and you can write these down. In Daniel eleven thirty-five. And there's more. In Daniel 11.40, it speaks of the time of the end. And it says in Daniel 12.4, seal up the book until the time of the end. And there, in chapter 11 and 12, it clearly moves, as we'll see, to the end of the world, to the end of time. So, beloved, I'm asking you this question as you put your thinking caps on. Was it all of chapter 8, was it fulfilled in Antiochus' death and history, if you will? Or is Antiochus the forerunner to the future Antichrist who will come at the end of the age? Okay? Now, just a little homework with you. There's three basic views of interpreters on the time of the end. And I think this could help you. There's some people who look at the historical view, okay? And what they say in that view is that chapter 8 was fulfilled completely and finally, in the end, in, excuse me, in Antiochus, from 175 to 164, the time of the end lies at the end, if you will, of the existing prophetic horizon in the person of Antiochus. Historical view. All of eight is historical. On the other hand, there's a futuristic view that some would say that all of chapter 8 pertains to the future Antichrist at the end of the world. And we'll look through that in just a moment. To me, that seems very difficult because of what we've shared the last two weeks regarding Alexander the Great and what we said last week about Antiochus Epiphanes. I don't think it's all futuristic. Then there's a third view of interpreters, which is what I hold to, is the dual fulfillment view. That it is chapter 8, and you can read these things and read more on your own, that it is fulfilled historically in Antiochus, but it is also prophetically fulfilled in the future in the Antichrist 
at the time of our Lord's return. The dual fulfillment. We call that the law of double reference. What is that, Scott? I I think that might come up. The law of double reference is there's one prophecy referring to two events. The first prophecy is relevant to the near time frame. That would be history for us. And the other prophecy is a far fulfillment in the future. The historical, maybe I'll call it the partial fulfillment, foreshadows a future final fulfillment. So beloved, Antiochus is the historical near fulfillment. And I do believe in some of the language... The Antichrist is the future and final fulfillment. We call that dual fulfillment. The assurance, beloved, for you practically, the assurance of the fulfillment of the first prophecy is the assurance of the fulfillment of the coming prophecy. So Gabriel gives Daniel not only the immediate prophecy in Antiochus, but he also gives him a vision whom Antiochus foreshadows, the Antichrist who will come all the way at the end. So I think the end time is best seen as a dual fulfillment. But pick up the text with me again, and we'll go through that in verse 18. It says there in 18, when he had spoken to me, the Gabriel, he said, I fell into a deep sleep. He face plants again with my face to the ground. And I love this, but he touched me and he made me stand up. He's just overwhelmed. I mean, he's in captivity. Almost 70 years they've been there. And he gets this vision about countries and leaders and little horns who's going to unleash a persecution on Daniel's people and the people of God. And he's just, he's just absolutely overwhelmed. You say, well, what did Gabriel say? Look at verse 19. He said, behold, I'll make known to you what shall be at the later end of the indignation. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. Now, beloved, you have to know that I think when he's saying that there, he's talking about the end of Antiochus in the near fulfillment. Verse 20, as for the ram that you saw with two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king, and that was Alexander the Great. Now verse 22, as for the horn that was broken, that was Alexander the Great, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but it's real clear, but not with his power. And we look through that, and this is hundreds of years before it came to place. Look at the text Again, it picks up in verse 23. And at the later end, the latter end of their kingdoms, I still think he's talking Antiochus, when the transgressors have reached their limits, then he says a king of bold face who also understand riddles shall arise. In other words, 
He's going to come on the scene. You'll notice when it says when the transgression has reached their limit. What does that mean? Well, it just means when the transgressions literally have run their course. Or when the transgressions make full. And he's talking there, obviously, in the near fulfillment, Antiochus and his wickedness were going to be filled up to the full, or it could even be the Jews' own sinfulness after returning to exile that's bound up in this. But Daniel describes Antiochus for us. He's the near fulfillment. But I think there's a far fulfillment in the Antichrist. What do you think? And I'm going to preach this as as Antiochus. But I'm going to put some scriptures that will show you there's some places in the future, in the book of Matthew, in the Gospels, and specifically in the book of Revelation, that eerily, if you will, show that what Antiochus was will also be seen in the future Antichrist. You say, tell me a little bit more about Antiochus. And number one, I'll just, I'll be quick here. He's defiant. He is defiant. And we're still in history at this point. It says that he's a king. Do you see that in verse 23? Of bold face. He, I think it's the NASB. He's the king of fierce countenance. Now you say, what do you mean of bold face? Well, behind the etymology of just the bold face, the word means that he's going to be merciless, okay? He's going to be cruel. At the same time, he's merciless and cruel. He's going to, it says in 23, understand riddles. He's going to just, I mentioned that, solve difficult problems, But it says there in 23 that he shall arise. And you see that in verse 23. His power in verse 24 is going to be great. And so Antiochus opposed God. He opposed the people of God. Antiochus gave himself the name I mentioned last week, not You know, uh, he gave himself the name Epiphanes, which means illustrious manifestation, a title only belonging to God. I mentioned that they found 126 coins, and Antiochus is on that coin, Theos, and here's what it says, Antiochus Epiphanes, which means Antiochus, God manifest. So the Jews made up the other name for him where they called him not Epiphanes, but Epimenes. And that literally means madman. And that's what he he was. He exalted himself in history to a place that only belongs to God. He was a monomaniac. He was self-consumed. And we have seen that in ancient history. But listen, We also believe, I believe the language, I believe the words, the end of time, push beyond Antiochus and that he foreshadows the future Antichrist in the New Testament. So Antiochus is the near and partial fulfillment of the future Antichrist who will be the complete fulfillment. One of the things I was trying to grapple with, you two, what do you mean the end of time? 
I mean, I, I certainly, I think he's talking about Antiochus. Then the sanctuary will be reestablished. But I think you would say with me, the end of time for the Jews? Oh, yeah, they wiped out that Seleucid Empire and had relative freedom because of the Maccabees. But we know, beloved, a hundred years later, they went back under captivity to who? To the Romans. And then we know that the Romans persecuted him. And they have been a persecuted people. So I'm thinking, yes, on the one hand, it's the end of Antiochus's reign. But it would lead to the future Antichrist. Write this scripture down in Luke 21. There will be, and this is towards the future end. There will be a great distress upon the earth and wrath against his people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem strangely familiar, will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. And then this famous phrase, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So it can't be the end of everything. It was on a near fulfillment, but the language has got to press at the Olivet Discourse until the end of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Now, it says here, he was so defiant, but you see it again at the end of verse 7, but he's, he, he doesn't, it, it's not his own power, uh, not his own power. Antiochus was energized by Satan, I believe. You know, it's interesting in Revelation 13 too, that in the future, it speaks of the, to the dragon who was Satan, who gave his power and his throne and great authority to the beast. So you've got the precursor, the foreshadow of Antiochus, leaning down to the end of the age with the Antichrist. Paul even said of the future Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians 2.9, that it is the coming of the lawless one, Antichrist, is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. So this man that we understand here is going to certainly be defiant at every place. But that's not all. Secondly, he's going to be a destroyer. He's a destroyer. You say, how so? Well, look at the text in verse 20. His power shall be great. It's not his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does. Isn't that interesting? He's going to succeed. And destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. And it says, by his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper. He's going to be a destroyer. It says right there, he is going to destroy mighty men and the people of his, of the saints. Without warning, the Antiochus destroyed many. Then he even in historical times raised up against the prince of princes, which is God himself, and he sought to destroy not only the people of God, but God himself and the worship of God. I read to you last week, I'll read it again in 2 Maccabees 5. Antiochus ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy everyone they saw and to butcher all who took refuge in their houses. 
It says in Maccabees that it was a massacre of young and old women and children, a butchery of virgins and infants. There were 80,000 victims in the course of those three days, 40,000 dying by violence at the hands of soldiers, and as many again being sold into slavery. So what, what is he? he we, we knew Antiochus to be defiant. We know him to be a destroyer. We see that defiance in the New Testament of the Antichrist. We see that in the New Testament, the Antichrist is also a destroyer, okay? And just as Antiochus swept across the land, so will the Antichrist. Revelation 13, 7, and he was allowed... Watch the language. To make war on the saints and conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and nation and language. Amazingly. In fact, in the book of Zechariah in chapters 13 and 14, it speaks that at the tribulation time, the Antichrist will wipe out two-thirds of the Jews. Now, now, now watch this. Daniel, see, do you understand why he was sick at the end of the vision? He's thinking maybe the 70 years and we're going to go back to the place and he's forecasting, I believe, not only near fulfillment, far fulfillment. So he's defiant, is the Antichrist. He's a destroyer. Thirdly, he's deceitful. He's deceitful. How so, Scott? Look at 25. Watch the language. By his cunning. He shall make deceit prosper under his hand. Wow. He sh in his own mind, he shall become great. And without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, God himself. I mean, Antiochus Epiphanes was the poster child, you say of power? I wouldn't say that. He's the poster child of deceit. You say, well, do we know that? Yes, we know that exactly. I'm reading a historical account. Antiochus sent, quote, quoting, a large army against the towns of Judea. And when the soldiers, his, entered into Jerusalem, their commander spoke to the people, offering them terms of peace and completely deceiving them. Then, the, the document says, he suddenly launched a fierce attack on the city and he killed many people. So what was he like? What will he be like in the future? Deceitful deceitful. It says of the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 and 10, where it speaks of the coming of the lawless one who is empowered by the activity of Satan, this phrase, with all power and false signs. His power is going to be manipulated. He's going to show false signs and wonders when all wicked deception, there's our word, deception, for those who are perishing. He's probably going to be a guru at AI. But they're going to be false signs. And whatever Antiochus is and was, it would appear that he's 
pushing beyond that at some point in the language. Revelation 13, 13 says this, he will perform great signs, fire, it says, to come down from heaven to earth in front of the people, and by the signs, it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, and it deceives those who dwell on the earth. There's a deception that was marked by Antiochus. There is a deception coming in this evil one. In fact, it says of the Antichrist in the future in 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, he takes his seat in the temple proclaiming himself to be God exactly who Antiochus thought he was. So in the pattern of Antiochus, the Antichrist will seek to stand against Christ. And so therefore, we know in the future, that's what the Antichrist does. Whatever Christ stands for is the opposite of what the Antichrist stands for. But beloved, maybe here's the most glorious thing today. This is not the end of the game. This is not time has run out. I mean, if it was, it would be frankly discouraging. Now, the reason I'm preaching this today is I want to give you a biblical worldview. And some of you, and I I don't mean it like harshly, you want things better. You want a better world. You want a better state. I mean, I just saw that evidently we're going to be spending $3 billion in the state of California for sex changes in illegal immigrants. Not million, but $3 billion. And our heart fights against that. But listen, I want you to be a family and a single person that understands the scope of it all And in the end, Jesus will win, right? Amen? But look what it says in the text in 825. It says there, and he, at the end of 25, astoundingly, astonishingly, he shall be broken, but by no human hand. And I think he's talking about Antiochus first. Listen, he claimed that Antiochus that he would make Jerusalem a burial place. He said, I'm going to bury you. Don't people say that in movies? I'm going to bury you. Sometimes players say that to the coach. When you're gone, I'll still be playing. I don't know. But he said this out loud. I'm going to make Jerusalem a burial place. And no sooner had Antiochus made that declaration that he was himself inflicted with an incurable disease. They don't quite know what it was. The stench from his body before he died, sorry to be so graphic, was so horrible that Antiochus couldn't even stand the smell. And in the history books later, he confessed that he was suffering because of what he had done to the Jews. And I'm telling you, he died in misery broken by no human hand. Exactly what it says. Whatever the Bible says, 
is true. In fact, can you tell me about the Antichrist in the future? Yeah, just look back at chapter seven. There's so many more scriptures. I look because of the sound, and I'm in 711, 711, because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed, and it was given over to be burned with fire. That's the end of the Antichrist. And so you say, well, what, what happened at the end of this? I'll finish. Look at 26. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is, what does it say? True. It's true. So look what he said. But seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. I still think he's talking about Antiochus near, far. I think the Antichrist. He said, seal it up. You're thinking, what do you mean, seal it up? You're, you're thinking that means keep it a secret. No, that's not what it means. It means, it doesn't mean hide it. It means seal it up and the thought would be write it down. Don't keep it a secret. Here's the thought. I want you to preserve it. You say, why? Because it will cure if many days from now. So then the end, look, I, Daniel, <laughs> I like how he says that. So personal. This is not pseudo Daniel. Daniel is the author. He says he's the author. He's the author. In fact, it's interesting that when Jesus referred to him in the Olivet Discourse, he called him Daniel the prophet. But he says, I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose... Here's a takeaway. And I went on a book tour. No, it doesn't say that. I rose and I started a podcast. Doesn't say that. Look, I rose and I went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. He was exhausted, sick for days, but he went about the king's business. Um, listen, you know more than Daniel knew. You're watching on the backside fulfilled history. And I think this language is pushing to something beyond. And what's beyond, praise God, is the kingdom of God. Amen. This world is not our home. We're strangers and aliens just passing through. We're waiting for the coming kingdom of God. And my prayer for you, and I think the author here, is be a kingdom-minded people and be faithful. Don't be unfaithful because he's coming back. Be faithful to your employer. Be faithful. Be the best steward, men and women, that you can to those who you work for. And he went about the king's business. Everything the Bible says about the past is true. Everything about the, Bi the Bible says about the future is true. What God states in prophecy is fulfilled and unfulfilled prophecy will happen just as he said it would. And the implication is you can trust them. Amen. Would you bow your head 